0: Hello and welcome to Over the Edge. This episode features an interview between Matt Trefiro and Steve Mueller, Chief Technology Officer at Hypersive, Considered one of the world's leading experts in remote technologies, Steve has spent the past 25 years providing his technical expertise to more than 300 of the largest enterprises across five continents. He spent his early years building core DevOps and virtualization principles to achieve automation and scale has worked for VMware and AWS addressing customer needs, and is now CTO of a startup that is focused on next-generation edge, end-user compute, and device virtualization. In this episode, Steve evaluates what the edge is today and how it has changed over time. He talks about cloud computing and working in a remote desktop world. Steve addresses the future of physical security and technology and why he's excited about what's in store for the use of video. He also explains how his company Hypersive provides a platform for building management and security through ready-to-run cloud services that work with already existing infrastructures. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsors.
1: Over the
2: Edge is brought to you by Dell Technologies to unlock the potential of your infrastructure with edge solutions. From hardware and software, to data and operations, across your entire multi-cloud environment, we're here to help you simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting Dell.com for more information or click on the link in the show notes.
0: And now, please enjoy this interview between Matt Trefiro and Steve Mueller, Chief
1: Technology Officer at Hypersiv. Hey, Steve. How are you doing today?
2: Good, Matt. How are you doing? A little busy here.
1: Yeah, it's super busy here, so I'm glad that you took some time to to answer my questions. I'm sure we could go more than an hour, but we'll try to keep it to an hour. <laughs> Yeah,
2: we won't we won't punish your audience here.
1: Yeah, so I know we have lots of interesting stories we're going to cover, but I I really want to go way back. Like, how did you even get into technology?
2: It's funny. When I was a kid, my father was an electrical engineer focused on RF and satellites. Fairchild, Honeywell was also involved in the Intel stuff. So, at an early age of six, I was there. Was these books in the early '80s that helped you transcribe how to how to write basic, and you would just go enter. You would just type it into a PC or. At the time, a small 8088 PC. Byte Magazine. And yeah, Byte Magazine. I, and they would have this funny like binder on the back, like you'd go to Kinko's or FedEx office now, and you'd open it up and you'd be like, awesome. And you had no idea what it did, but you would just type this into some basic interpreter and then run it and you'd be like, oh, that was either really awesome or really disappointing. But it started back as or early as that when I was a kid. Well, oscilloscopes, my mom would have, a, she'd have oscilloscopes on the dinner table and she would yell at my dad to get these, the scopes off the table so we could actually have dinner. But then, when my more my my more professional years, I got my bachelor's of electrical engineering at Arizona State, and at the time, this kid was falling asleep behind me in my calc three class, and I said to him in like '94, "I was like, bro, you're sleeping all the time. What's up?" And he goes, "I work for this internet company. We didn't call it startups back then, and I was on the VAX machines in my sophomore year at college at Arizona State doing internet stuff and working with Trump Winsock and think this whole internet thing was going to blow up." And one thing led to another, and I got an interview down there in 95, and I hired on in May of 1995 at what we would now call a startup. And they were an ISP that was also an e-commerce platform. And that really started my trajectory. I, I finished with a bachelor's in undergrad, electrical engineering, and I was working full-time. And then uh, when I graduated from school, I went full-time into professional services for a, a company out of Boston and never looked back. And in 2000, really the turning event was, and that was in 98, and 2000. I got a job with a company called BEA at the time, focused Mm -hmm. on WebLogic Server, which was acquired by Oracle in 2008 for $9 billion. And the rest is history.
1: So you mentioned oscilloscopes and electrical engineering, but I tend to think of you as a software guy. What's the the transition to software?
2: I wanted a degree that it was hard to see where it was going to go. I felt like computer science or computer science engineering, either of those two was going to typecast me too much into one specific role. And my father said two things to me in my early years before going to college. He's like, find a degree in engineering. You're an engineer at heart. Find something that gives you the breadth of skill and doesn't really specialize in one area. And then right before I graduated, I did four years of that. He said to me, whatever you do, don't go into electrical engineering. That's going to be commoditized heavily. The foundries have moved overseas and it's all being done in software. And you're really smart software guy. I was like, well, gee, thanks. I just did four years of extreme mathematics for that. So uh, that's really where it went. But software was always my passion. The electrical engineering was really more an emphasis on mathematics and how the world really works and really an effort to not specialize in one thing.
1: So I spent a lot of my, my time around software engineers and mm. they all have a favorite language and two favorites, like the favorite that you like to program in today, but the, the one that has the nostalgia. So I'm interested in the nostalgia one. What's the nostalgia language for you?
2: I have so much root in Java and Java has such a bad connotation now. And there's been efforts like Scala and Erlang. To modernize that although I think they failed miserably in the end they're very difficult if you said which one I would I what I'd love to go back to the most and really dive into again is uh, C++ with an effort in Visual C++ on my earliest days I was programming in Visual C++ for Honeywell r and d where we were in the aerospace labs Java is clearly the one and then on the alternate side if you ask me the, the language I hate the most and it's gonna I, there's so many people who are gonna hate me for this but I hate Python I hate Python. The, the Python 2.6.3 war is a disaster. The backwards compatibility between that is a disaster. The management deployment of Python is a disaster. Can I do pip install as, as root or not root, homebrew? It's just a tremendously fractured organization. And any language that punishes you for the use of indate, indent over space, and by the way, I'm an indent guy, not a space guy, is, and we mix too. and match those two is just a disaster. Yeah, but what's your, uh, so, what's,
1: what's your editor of choice?
2: VI to this day.
1: I that's amazing. Yeah, I I learned on VI. I could never yeah. wrap my head around Emacs and now I don't yeah. do any programming. Like <laughs> the closest I get oh. is like writing Excel formula.
2: And the funny thing about VI is there was an you know, I grew up on the Sun OS 4.1 Solaris 2.5 systems. Mm-hmm. That was my earliest at the internet company I started at. And I will tell you right now that there were some really old dudes who were suspenders. Like it was that way for me. And this is the, my formative years of my career. Twenty years old, nineteen ninety-five. 96, 97, 98, before I actually go out to the real world and get a job right before the internet bubble hits. These dudes had suspenders, and they'd come from Boeing and other places, and they were like, look, kid, VI is installed by default on these operating systems. We didn't really have pseudo-YUM and pseudo-APT, you know, APT and YUM repos at the time. We were getting there, and Emacs was a third party that had to get installed. So you booted a system up, you had VI, I? you know, that was it. <laughs> yeah. It's fun, funny story. In In fact, just as a side note, not that you asked me the question, but... You know, there's this argument about using Vim, too. I will literally go back into the systems and try to disable Vim and go back to VI.
1: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, well, I've, I've got a, those keystrokes in my motor memory. Yeah, so so even yeah. though there's a lot of Vim, I'm okay with it because it's close enough to VI. <laughs> it's yeah, not even and, and,
2: and, and, and you can chalk this in. I'm not that old. You guys can figure out how old I am. But even color coding, I'm like, oh, this feels foreign. What are we doing here? It's dirty.
1: Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> So, so at some point, you did a, a tour through Amazon. Can you tell me how, how that came about?
2: My career, for the majority of my career, I, I transitioned finally out of, I started in professional services in 98, and then moved over to more internal to what we would consider at the time systems engineering, and then eventually solutions architect. And that took me through the web WebLogic days into a small run through computer associates and then some end user companies, but eventually back to the vendors. For the most part, I've been in vendors, I've been working for the vendors and in 2012, I joined VMware, and I was at that oh, point. How many employees really,
1: were at VMware then?
2: Oh, man, I think the question is how many were not leaving at that time, right? I mean, this is 2012. So it was uh, right after the, the confusing acquisition of EMC, and the heyday of like 2004 to 2007, right? Uh, sales guys standing by the fax machine just collecting orders. I don't know, probably 10,000, I want to say 16. Okay. It was right at the other side of the heyday. But my career, you asked a question, on very specific on Amazon. My career, it, it really taken me through focusing on applications. So application workloads is always by my thing. Highly distributed transactional systems was certainly there. I was not an infrastructure guy until I got into, I left, I kind of, I, I left the BEA WebLogic world and where I was really focused for customer application workloads. And then eventually make my way over to VMware through small two-year duty in Pearson And that's where I started really getting focused on infrastructure and really the elasticity of infrastructure, provisioning underlying infrastructure to support these applications, right? I had never really cared about SAN or NAS or storage, didn't really care about networks. And I think in about early 2010, 2011, as right as I get into VMware, it becomes infrastructure. And really the interest of how do I provision infrastructure to support my applications and lots of these stacks of applications without relying on traditional physical Cloud hadn't really become a thing at that point yet. Jungle Disk and those players were starting to work with Amazon S3, but it hadn't really become mainstream. And then I left, I was at VMware for a year. And VMware is a great company. It wasn't for me. And my guys knew that. And there was an individual there who was looking to lead for a Nutanix. And he said, you know, I think you're better suited for a company like Amazon. And he said, I just happened to interview with them. I'm going to turn it down. This is 2013 at this point. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, so he, he said, look, I'm going to give you the intro to this person over at Amazon. I still remember her name and her email address to this day. And in April of 2013, I interviewed at Amazon, and I was hired in June. And then I did about a seven-year run through the Amazon.
1: And what, what was the first role you had at Amazon?
2: Enterprise Solutions Architect out of the New York City office on uh, 56 and 6, and focused primarily on customers in that area, New York and New Jersey, which spanned, it wasn't specific to any one area like financial or healthcare insurance, which are the big three in New York, but definitely some public-facing customers. The most public would be Hess and helping them in their migration out of their physical data centers into AWS as part of their broader divestiture. They were selling off their businesses, and they needed to move the assets over to Marathon. Like Marathon Oil, for example, bought the gas stations from Hess, and part of that deal included the infrastructure technology. Well, this stuff's all sitting in a physical data center. It's all multi-tenant. And so you really can't just remove the host, put them on a truck, because you're going to impact the other parts of your business. So Hess migrated all of their stuff for that business out to AWS first and then turned those AWS accounts over to Marathon. That's a very public story, and it was actually me sitting at the table when I watched Marathon and Hess sit down and say, what's the password? And here's the MFA key, and here it's now your AWS account. Very interesting.
1: Yeah, moment in history. And so did you spend your entire career at at Amazon in the customer-facing solutions?
2: no actually i thought i was going to i did about a year and a half in the enterprise sa world and for very practical purposes i wanted to leave that role to be very honest with you (laughs) i lived in new jersey and i was 60 miles out of new york city and the time they were asking us to come into new york every day that's a brutal commute sometimes it could be 30 minutes and sometimes it could be four hours and there was an opportunity that was presented to me that said hey We've got this emerging technology, 2014 timeframe, called Amazon Workspaces. It had an internal code name, which you can actually see some hint of that in the product today. They referenced it in the registration code with the prefix SL. That hints at the, the internal code name that they used for it. And they said we're looking to start. We're looking for some specialists to help us drive the Workspaces story. And it was an opportunity for me to kind of get out of the enterprise churn of driving around New York City and. New Jersey and up to Connecticut, which I love my customers there. I absolutely did. But I personally wanted to grow further than that. And it gave me an opportunity to get back into Seattle with the product teams, which is also my goal. And so I took on the VDI role. We would call it desktop as a service at Amazon. Historically, VMware companies call it VDI for virtual desktop infrastructure. And it was born on a very practical purpose for me, but it really spun me into getting into Seattle, working with the product teams and really focusing on workspaces and getting out of the desk in New York City. And that was the key moment for me to transition internally to Amazon. While that was a very public-facing role, people know me for that public-facing role. I'm still considered one of the world's leading experts in remote technologies on Amazon. It eventually led me to the AWS Data Center team. A side note, by the way, it was funny. Somebody asked me what my qualifications were for VDI and remote desktop and integer compute. I laughed. I said, have you ever... Provided end user compute support to your family or your parents like that that qualifies you right like we try to get
1: out of that business <laughs> that's right yeah well it's interesting we you know getting set up for this podcast and you mentioned that you're a remote desktop company in in the entirety and i that really surprised me because i very few people say that it's a really interesting approach T- tell me a little bit about that we'll go back to amazon but I, tell me a little bit about that
2: what that we're a remote desktop company
1: well yeah i mean i i depend on my laptop and I, uh, granted 90 percent of what i do is in a browser but I depend on my laptop and I depend on being able to use things without connectivity. How, how do you, like, yeah, tell me you think about it.
2: The attack surface in a company comes in multiple forms. In my company at Hyperson, we think about this all the time, separating church and state between service infrastructure for our products that customers use and corporate infrastructure that run the business. And I argue both, by the way, services, product and services roll up to me as CTO. And desktop in- corporate infrastructure rules up to me as well. And we've done this very specifically because we think the attack vector into a service model that customers use externally is through social engineering of, of a like for your corporate infrastructure and employees. And part of that attack surface is on the desktops that we use. In fact, I mean, I think anybody'd be foolish to try to penetrate server infrastructure through the front door. At this point, you're basically going to FedEx and you're trying to put a box on that truck before it goes to a building. That's Kind of the attack vector you're using now to get to a company's assets or their services and the same holds true with desktops and it's one of those areas where the mission really becomes we used to talk about this all the time that laptop that was lost or left in the cab in new york yeah. city is the attack vector to everything in fact just a little perspective too i mean there's a culture at amazon and other companies not to implicate just one where we love to put stickers on our laptops in fact i mean i i certainly love to too but from an attack vector perspective it really gives a lot of information about where you work and what might be on that laptop. So, you know, I've always challenged that paradigm to say, yes, there's a very human element to this. But really, at the end of the day, remote desktops and remote applications run running in the cloud, right? So if we take like Amazon AppStream or Amazon Workspaces, they give you an uh, inherently improved security posture. You get to govern and control in ways that you couldn't before. It actually, our entire company, my entire company, everybody, all my employees, all 23 of them, run on amazon workspaces today it lets us scale without having much staff here it lets us focus on automation and it really lets us think about not only just the security implications but i have had two employees who during the pandemic their first mission on hiring was drive to a best buy or a target or an apple store and getting a device and bootstrapping themselves up in two hours on all systems and because we went with the road perspective it was an improved security posture but the ease of deployment with very little overhead on our part was was astounding.
1: That makes so much. It's interesting because I was thinking in my head it was for cost or convenience or mm. all those other things. But you went right to security, which actually makes sense because like you are in security. Let's <laughs> let's go back a little bit. We'll, we'll we'll hit security pretty deeply. But you you said that you moved into the the data the data center group within Amazon. I did.
2: How I got there, I I have to be very specific about what it is. There were some people inside the data center that were very interested in what I was doing in remote desktops. And because of that, they invited me into the AWS data center world. And it's funny, right? AWS data centers are a black box, as they should be. Customers should focus on the service, not the underlying infrastructure. And it allows the service provider like Amazon or you know even Microsoft to really focus on implementation specific details in the data centers. But I will tell you, you have to get invited into that world and you have to have a business reason as to why you're being invited.
1: Very interesting. Can you tell me that business reason you were invited?
2: Again, there were things that we were doing in the end user compute space that were interesting to them. And I can't go into that much further, other than to say the the number one mission at Amazon inside the data centers is to always provide the level of security and responsibility towards those attestations that they make at SOC2 or ISO twenty seven thousand one or nine thousand one or whatever they certify on. Your mission is to, to guard the fort, and it's always day one inside the AWS data centers. Processes that worked a year prior oftentimes are, are critically looked at the next year. And as part of those processes, especially in the security area, they were very interested in what I was doing in end user compute and some of those things. And that led them to me, and that really spun me into three years within the data center team, where eventually I moved beyond just the initial end user compute. Going into the data center world at Amazon is all about earning trust demonstrating value how do you improve those it is it is mind-boggling the scale of their data centers and the employees that they have around the globe to support those i can't talk obviously about those numbers yeah anybody who today says that i I think private data centers are coming back in a different way and we can talk about that if you want later but in a new way kind of from an edge perspective near-prem on-prem type world but yeah the the eventually in three years time, I I transitioned over to, I got to know the inside of the data centers very well and how they operated and got to look at, I brought with me less of a sense of electrical or mechanical engineering, which is a large part of what any data center runs on, right? Data centers have three properties that are like, there are three fundamental properties to a data center anywhere in the world. And it doesn't have to be Amazon's, it could be Equinix or CoreSight or anybody else. One, air handling, if you're not moving air, you're melting everything, Two, power. Actually, it's really number one, power. If you don't have power, you're just done. Two, air handling. You got to move air. Got to move air. It's not about keeping it cool. It's about moving air. And then three is network. Those are the three physical characteristics. And so in that domain, at the core of it, you're really focusing on electrical engineering and and mechanical engineering with definitely some computer science on networking. Then the physical security, technology and physical security, traditional measures come into place. But those are really only to guard the assets that a a finance division or organization has funded and has interest in, in those data centers.
1: Did you found Hypersive right out of Amazon?
2: Yes, I did. Yeah, so so I, I finished my, my three years in the data center world, got hooked up with the physical security team that was responsible for the highest levels of personnel at Amazon. Mm-hmm. I did two and a half years there, and then- 007 stuff? <laughs> that's a good way of thinking about it. Although we didn't wear the tuxes and the black ties. I was responsible for software development and technology operations for that team, for the highest levels of personnel at Amazon. And so I had a very unique insight into what physical security meant with folks who've done time in, in various government organizations and or have law enforcement and or military backgrounds. It's interesting. You, you learn things. That's not your world, right? Like, I don't come from that world. Those guys spent long time, like a lot of time in that world. That was new to me, but you learn quickly, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, you're in that world now. You're a leader in that world. Oh, yeah.
2: yeah, definitely. And, you know, you're in that world and you, you see things. Like, it's funny, I was watching on TV the other night just kind of between current geopolitical situation, right? Keeping it as diplomatic as possible. You watch events from both sides. You watch how people move in protective services teams. Uh, I watched an interview on 60 Minutes with President Volodymyr Zelensky, mm-hmm. and he's got this concentric ring of people. And I was talking to my friends and I said, oh, that person over there is doing this. And these people are doing this. And you you, you learn that in that role at Amazon in a very physical world. But, But you also are focused. You bring in a corporate infrastructure, IT background, Application background and uh, an infosec background, more on the logical side of things. To so that world, you you get invited in, you learn things, you you help them, help coach them too, and and eventually you realize you're in this broader industry focused on things that are just so from a an era that that has not yet moved to cloud and has not yet moved to a service model that cloud provides. And so yes, I left Amazon after seven years and decided to start a company and register to the partner network at Amazon, where we focus on those types of workloads. Yes,
1: I personally been around for a couple of years, but up until very recently in stealth. So very few mm. people probably know what Hypersive is. So what, what, what is Hypersive?
2: Yeah, so so there, there's two parts of that, that, that answer and I'm trying to make this as interesting as I can for you. There's the, what do you think it should be when you start the company? And then there's the, what is it actually customers are gonna pay for, right? So at the core, I left Amazon with a really strong two and a half year presence in a security organization that most will never get to see or be part of, if, if not all and learning some very interesting things about the way that works. But I also spent a deep amount of time focused on building technologies too. Three years in the data center world, mechanical, electrical properties, networking properties, how we think about things there. And then, and, and from like a, a building management system, kind of like a power management controls, commercial controls, we would call it. But then I also had a great tenure in, in end user compute and works and things like workspaces and Amazon AppStream and, and redefining thin clients. And what we realized... When we when I started Hypersive, a uh, party of one, and then it and it quickly grew in the about the twelve month mark is where we started getting the first round of hires, and we were starting to prove it. I was very focused on physical security technology. That was where the customer demand was externally, regardless of my time at Amazon. Well, what does What does
1: that mean? What does physical security technology mean?
2: Ah, uh, yeah, good question. It, it, video surveillance, badge okay. access control, right? Okay. So the access control see, and cameras. Yeah. Yeah. So if you go to like a mall, or if you go to like a bank, or if you go to like uh, Home Depot, for example, anywhere you go, including corporations, you'll see video surveillance all over the wall, uh, ceilings, walls, and, and then badge access control. What that means is, especially in the corporate world, if you hit a badge on a door and it goes beep, red light blinks in the door, clicks open, that's access control, right? Where, what part of the building do you get into? Uh, those are the two first areas that we focused on at iPersive. But what you realize is you can sell into the physical security domain, But what you're building and how you approach that is actually broader to the building itself. And and in the end, you ask the question, which I'm going to pay off right now. Hypersive is a company that's a, a startup that's been operating for two years. And we're focused on taking the technologies that customers use to manage their buildings and delivering it back to them as a service so that they can get off their traditional racks and consume those things that are either video surveillance or access control in the physical security world or things like escalators, elevators, commercial controls they can consume that as a service. And by service, I mean, as if Amazon or Microsoft provisioned for them. And really in the end, that's our mission is to say, hey, those workloads that you have in your building, it's it's not about the rack. It's about the fact that you, Mr. or Mrs. Customer are having to constantly install it or you're having to pay a VAR to install it. This is undifferentiated heavy lifting. What if we gave it back to you as a service that you consume and let you choose where to place it on the hardware? So it could be Something like an AWS Outpost hardware, or it could be a Dell HP VMware stack, or it could be remote in EC2 or equivalent in Microsoft Azure VM or Azure Stack Edge. And so we're really working with these customers to take these workloads, deliver them back to them as single-tenant SaaS services that they can consume. They don't have to put their people on it to build them. They can just use it in a consumption way, and then they can put it where they want.
1: I'm going to make a stretch, and we can connect something you said earlier to something you just said, and you can tell me if I'm right or not. It sounds like you're also eliminating a threat vector
2: hundred percent. Yeah, that's that's the that that is correct. That's that virtual um,
1: desktop. I mean, because I, I imagine we've all seen these video walls of the guard, you know, sitting in there watching these things. And I've, I've heard stories that a lot of times it's a Windows server sitting on the desk. And, you know, he's dropping his Doritos on it. And, and, and <laughs> I mean, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe it's actually a closet, but it does seem like a threat factor.
2: Oh, it's, it's, it, there's a tremendous amount of threat factors. The number one threat to any organization is the insider threat. So you don't trust your own people.
1: And that's brutal.
2: It's number one. Brutal. It's hmm. very brutal. It's it's borderline non-humanitarian. But if you're a business owner, especially at scale, you, the number one thing you're worrying about, the thing you're most proud about is your employees. The thing you worry about is your employees most. Right. That's the one that takes hmm. companies down. So you have to think of it from that perspective. Buildings themselves, commercial controls are long an attack vector. Stuxnet, the malware program, that's always the biggest thing. That's actually the number one thing that commercial controls guys worry about, people worry about is a malware hitting the network and getting to those industrial controls. And and then it's really, you're in, in a very largely non-deterministic state of trust. But in the physical security world, in video surveillance in particular, video surveillance is, is by far and away, the biggest customer demand on us right now is video surveillance. In the building management space, the number one thing you think about is worry about is those video uh, surveillance feeds. And an example yeah, here is that like,
1: movie trope where the guy like inserts the the loop of the empty of the empty hallway and then does steals all the jewels.
2: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think about it more practically, right? Like if you look at Game of Thrones, if you followed that TV show at okay. all, I did. Disappointing season seven and eight, but that's for your audience to decide. What was the biggest thing that they were doing? The fans were going out there with cameras and getting seen video of yeah. the yeah. of the studio and that was an eye opener for the industry mm. because people realized that like video surveillance is usually a function of legal, right? Function of legal. In fact, at the end of the day, it's the last it's the last line of defense for legal. I mean, it, it reports
1: reports up into legal or what do you mean by that?
2: Some organizations it does, some organizations it reports into corporate infrastructure, but at the end of the day, who is one customer of video surveillance? It's not uh, your I see. security it's the, the insurance teams. companies
1: and the lawyers.
2: <laughs> law- lawyers, yeah. yeah. And in fact, to be honest, cameras in particular, video surveillance, uh, part of that, right? Those feeds have to be defended in a court of law when necessary. And sometimes it's the last line of defense for the business. If you look at a very physical world, if you're a, a McDonald's franchise owner, if you're a bank, it's the thing that can tell the difference between who robbed you or who presented a case of sexual disc- discrimination, harassment, Video feeds, ultimately, they are the last line of defense for a legal team, and they oftentimes have to go in front of a court of law and in local municipalities or Mm -hmm. federal courts and have to be defended there.
1: So, So there's chain of custody issues, there's validation issues. Yeah, interesting.
2: Yeah, chain of custody is a huge piece, but also people are now viewing video feeds as intellectual property.
1: As a as a just a, a person who's not in the security business, I tend to think visually. So maybe you could describe something to me. So have you ever seen those those three D cross sections of like the city of New York and it shows you what's layer one and layer two and layer three? Can you sort of give me a like a, what's inside a building? that's providing the security? I mean, obviously there's cameras, but you mentioned access controls. There's gotta be wires and wireless and servers. Like, can you just walk me through the, the, the parts and all the pieces? Like if I was gonna really secure a building, what do I need to be thinking about?
2: Yeah, I mean, per- perimeter defense, number one. And do you have, is it a free moving door? Is it a door that rotates? There's companies in the industry today like Boone Edom and Asa Abloy who really focus on door hardware. Yale is a big one as well, I saw Legion how do you let people into the building at the perimeter, right? Is it a one way door? Is it a, is it a two way door? Is it a rotating door, man-trap. Does it require badge? Is it a man trap? Correct. Does it permit one person at a time? Does it permit, is it free flowing, right? You have multiple people going in, by the way, the factors on that is always flow. And, and just mm. FYI too, for the audience here, there's no one right answer for security in any of the mm. domains. It's always a balance between what human, what has to be done and what is perceived by humans. And what you want to do. So like, to be honest, and and I'll get back to your question in a minute, like there's a lot of security people who want to be very draconian about their security model. It's going to be this, and it's going to be rock solid Fort Knox. But the reality is like, it's always tempered against the needs of the business and not just business people saying, Hey, talking business speak and saying, we got to do this, but more like, no, really? Come on. We're human at the end of the day. All of us are human. Right. I think. And How we want to walk through a door, you don't want to walk through a door one at a time in a busy shopping center. That's really pointless. I don't even want
1: to pull a badge out of my pocket.
2: No, so flow, right? Flow control. So security principles are always measured against, always measured against what the right measure is for for humans. But back at the building, metal detectors potentially, and metal detectors look for different things. You might look for ferrous material. You might look for explosive material. It depends on what you're trying to do, right? Does a knife cause damage? Yes. Does it cause chaos and terror? Absolutely. But is it on the threat level vector of to an IED an, an improvised explosive device? It has there's no comparison, right? Yeah. A gun is just as equally as bad, or if not worse, than a than a knife, but compared to an IED? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, so what you're looking for there, metal detectors, scanners, traditional IR systems that kind of do people tracking. And then of course you get into what parts of the building are you allowed, access control and 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 that part and video surveillance. I think an effective security posture for a building would be what you do at the perimeter, perimeter, right? Meaning at the, actually at the door, if you're like in New York City or a fence line, if you're out in the country, as you then think about, as you come in from that fence line or the perimeter, what's the zone concept, right? Am I into a more restricted area or should I be concerned with? What what are, what's in this area? Like if you're in a, if you're in a shopping mall, like a Walmart or a Target in the back, there's going to be dumpsters that you don't really care about the security profile there. You might be concerned if there's some electrical, material there. Maybe not. Maybe it gets that, that electrical, that profile electrical material generators and the like, gets more sensitive when you get into more critical infrastructure type things. Whereas you like, if you attack my electrical at a shopping mall, okay, fine. You don't want to do that. But if you get into more critical infrastructure, like private or, or government, that, that is a really big attack vector that you have to think about. So an effective physical security strategy ends up is of course, cameras for a minimum recording, some element of visualization, definitely. We're moving into computer vision and inferencing of models there access control for, for certain, and then door hardware, how doors work against flow, and then metal detectors. Those four things are really good good effective strategy.
1: Yeah, interesting. So I, I recently walked into a retail store that shall remain nameless. It was a big store, 30,000 square feet. And I was really bored, and so I started counting the cameras. And I assume those like smoke, smoke colored domes are are, are camera on probably a, th- a three dimensional axis or something, at least two dimensional. Um, I started counting. I stopped counting at a hundred. And to to a person who's not in this world, that just sounds like an immense amount number of cameras, an immense amount of like fiber or coax or wireless, and like how how much resolution those cameras have. Where's all that data going? How's it getting to where it needs to go? Like. What's, what's out there?
2: So the way we talk about it in the industry is there's really a billion video surveillance cameras. And I'm not talking consumer. I'm talking commercial grade now, mm-hmm. stuff you put in a corporation building or a nameless shopping center, for example. There's about a billion of them worldwide. Half yeah. of that, five, 500 million are really marked in China. And if you're not in China, if you're not, if you're not a Chinese citizen, generally speaking, the industry just doesn't even acknowledge them. It's not that we don't acknowledge China. We just, you'll never get to them. So we talk in terms of um, the other half, which is 500 million cameras in the non-Chinese markets today, video surveillance. Most of them are, almost all of them are wired RJ45 because those cameras get power over over ethernet. It's really tough to put a camera up in the ceiling and try to be like, okay, can somebody plumb me some Romex and power outlets here? So that's just not going to happen. And then the, the cameras themselves have an API from what we'll consider a control plane they generally have a video H or H.264, H.265. That's the most common, usually wrapped up in RTSP, which is a legacy protocol and a four-letter word for certain people in video. And really, at the end of the day, those cameras at scale, and I'm going to come back to an interesting fact for you, those cameras at scale, a fleet scale, right? hundred in your example, or even more, upwards of three or I four. I stopped 000. at
1: hundred.
2: Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> there are a lot more uh, than hundred. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those, those get managed by what we call video management systems, VMSs for short, which is really software, Windows-based software, Hmm. Uh, most likely in the industry, the leaders are Milestone, Genetech, followed by Bosch, Vigilon, Vivatech, and others. Milestone and Genetech are really the, the, the one-two, and they take up the majority of those 500 million. They manage the majority of 500 million cameras. You have to manage those cameras at scale, right? Because you can't point a web browser at each camera and say, hey, set, you, set your frame rate or resolution this way at this point. You have to do that from a scale perspective and think about fleet, and that's what the VMSs do. A couple of things for you before we get off this topic as well. Resolutions vary. Historically, the resolutions were low. Nowadays, they're at 4K camera. 4K is overkill. 4K is a really good sell point for a camera manufacturer, but in practice, humans have to look at this, and 4K versus 1920, 2K resolution, not really a big deal. You talk about frame rates. It's not coax anymore, so you're dating yourself a bit, Uh, Legacy cameras are coax, but in early 2000s they moved to IP based cameras. So it's almost exclusively at this point ethernet. Any coax would be really round more of a traditional closed circuit TV system. And then funny funny enough you stop counting. So here's a here's a fast formula we use. Okay. It turns out that there's a general formula that's kind of like hand-wavy. How many cameras per square foot, right? Okay. So if you said to me like, "Hey, there's a 2 million square foot property, how many cameras do you think are going to be in there?" I would tell you three to 5,000, probably on the order of 3,500. If you said I've got like a Chase bank or a Wells Fargo bank and I'm using specific names. So apologies here to any other bank. I didn't name 50 cameras. If you said I walk into a subway or McDonald's, I'm going to go with 15 to 20. So there definitely are profiles that you associate to foot uh, square foot really at the end of the day and the class of the building that you're trying to secure. Uh, and how many cameras, if you come back to like a building in New York city, that's 50 stories high, you'll probably see, and it's dependent on the tenants, you probably get to a couple thousand cameras. If you get to like a one or two story building with six, 700 employees, I'm gonna go with 350 to 500 cameras.
1: So if I'm a McDonald's or Subway, and again, apologies for not mentioning all the other fast food restaurants, a franchise owner, and I, I run 100 stores, does that mean I have 100 Windows servers in yes. the stock room of my stores?
2: Yeah, that's the dirty secret, right? Yeah, you've got, uh, at the end of the day, all of these cameras have to be managed by these big industry video management products, which are exclusively Windows-based. So yes, you're so the industry historically and today are still running all of these Windows workloads, these video management systems on Windows boxes in there. And it could be, if you're a McDonald's, if you ever, here's a little, like next time you drive through for like, let's say your kid or maybe your grandkid, I don't know exactly what you have in your life, but somebody in your family and you're buying that thing, Look through the drive through window. You're going to okay. see probably two things. You're going to see a rat's nest of wires up there because you're going to see what they would... More often than not, it's funny, you'll see like their, their electronic equipment up there, what we would normally put into an IDF or MDF closet. That is usually there. You can see it through the drive through And probably somewhere in there is a Windows machine. Maybe it's a little box, like a, a more consumer-grade box, or maybe a one-you-or-two-you host. But yes, exclusively in every building, in every corporate building, in every franchise, there are Windows boxes. The total adjustable market here is ridiculous. I, I would venture... There are probably for every, for, for 500 million cameras out there across 57 million corporate buildings and all of the franchises, you're probably looking upwards of quarter billion, 250 million windows machines out there running this stuff wow. or more. And, and that stuff has yet to move to cloud.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, that's, and that's high person's role, right? Like that's what you're trying to, to bring to the industry. Tell me, tell me how you're approaching that.
2: Yeah. So you are correct. That's what we're focused on in this, in this world. There's, there's the early thinking five, six, seven years ago was, Hey, We need to move these cameras to cloud, assuming we have network to do it and the security guidance to do it and the security approval and compliance approvals to do it. Cool, we're going to move it to cloud. But at the end of the day, the VARs, the resellers and integrators didn't know how to, they don't know, they don't have those skills. And so, and the corporate infrastructure and InfoSec teams weren't willing to take that on as part of their IT function to the business. So everybody was going to the vendor saying, hey, give us a cloud-based solution. And they did, and they responded in kind. And they've come to market over the last two years with cloud-based stuff. So like if you look at Vercata or Meraki, Arculese, like all really good products. But at the end of the day, those require a large rip and replace. And one of the things that the industry flat out missed was finance teams at the end of the day are going to ask you like, hey, we've already capitalized this building. We've already built it out. Why are we ripping and replacing this, right? It's usually one and a half to 2%. The total spend on physical security is about one and a half to 2% of an overall build out of a building. And once it's capitalized, finance people don't like to go back and do something again. So the technical guys are like, well, we differentiate this way. But it gets to be very specific and kind of borderline at the tech gobbledygook phase. And finance people are like, not enough for reason, reject. And that's the headwind that those companies are facing today as you move to cloud. The other side of this is these systems, especially for corporate, as I said earlier, have been they have to go up in front of the judges, and the lawyers have to bring them to the courts of law to defend. Especially, I mean, that's that's the last line of defense. And so, introducing new systems that in, don't have that 30-year history in those courts is very difficult. The features are oftentimes just not there, so you're asking a lot for your customers to rip and replace at the tune, sometimes of millions of dollars, with very little net effect. That the finance teams don't want to move on, the courts don't understand it, and the, in, and the installers and bars just aren't there. So. We identified this and we said, listen, our mission is really to take what you have on that rack, drop that rack out, and then deliver it back to you as a service, as is, the same product, as if you did it yourself, right? And from a service-based model, which means you can run in AWS or Microsoft eventually, remotely as a service, or you can run on-prem or near-prem. And that means back on a rack, and that rack can be cloud-based hardware, like Amazon or Microsoft hardware, or traditional hardware like Dell HP VMware, and that's our mission is... You want the choice of running, you want to run in a cloud-based model, a service-based model without the rip and replace. And something that's congruent with your operational runbooks and your security practices that your lawyers and the courts of law understand that has a chain of custody, that has a 30-year history, that you don't have to change anything. And so our mantra is pretty simple, five, five basics. Use what you have, don't rip and replace. Pay for only what you use. Use only what you want, so decompose it down. If you just need the client or the server, absolutely. Run where you want, on-prem, near-prem, or in the cloud. And then finally, leave when you want to leave, right? And that's that's the number one problem at the end of the day is is people in the physical security world, when they have to think about the traction, Matt. I know you were in in the commercial side of the world, right? Sales marketing. It's a very long sales cycle to convince somebody to rip that rack out and move everything to a cloud-based position and move to a whole new system. You're kind of like, well, what happens if I don't like you or you start to boil the frog or you start to do things that I don't agree with? I'm kind of stuck. Now what? It's not just data anymore. It's your whole infrastructure is up at that partner or that vendor. And we see this. And it leads to long, long, long protracted sales cycles. And it really doesn't give the customer much choice. So believe it or not, our business, the, the fifth bullet point of leave when you want is our strongest value as a business. It's not just your data. It's your infrastructure. You, you buy out the contract on a commercial term, and we'll hand it right over to you. We'll disconnect the service provider model from it, and it's yours the next day. You RDP into it. You don't lose that. And that is a really big commitment to the customer.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I've been spending the last few weeks looking at the hospital industry. Hmm. And it sounds like they're facing a lot of the same internal desires, which is I'd like to get rid of my servers, my server room. I don't want to manage that like somebody else would like to buy it on a consumption basis. But they have that same, that same hesitancy, which is, well, I don't want to get locked into some vendor. And so what they, what they really respond to is growing into an ecosystem, Right, So that, yes, you've got lots of vendors competing for your business and lots of opportunities. You don't feel locked into anything. So I, I understand what they're saying, what you're saying. So not only this is, we've been geeking out on security, and I really love this, Steve, but not only this is a show about edge computing. <laughs> so how, how does your business, video security, intersect with the, the new concepts around edge computing?
2: Yeah, it's a really good question. I think it's at the cutting edge, to be honest. It, let's step back and ask ourselves what edge historically was right we tend to think of edge as like <laughs> on premises okay,
1: is what edge was
0: yeah
2: pre-cloud there's no cloud yeah. i'm here and then there was this mass migration over the last 10 11 12 years and it's like now i'm in the cloud but then there's this entrail of things that are left behind that are kind of like the stragglers and that and we're like oh that's a yeah we left you behind and then we're like oh that's the edge right so like a cool marketing term and so Edge was really left as being anything that was on-prem that really didn't go to cloud, historically associated with, of course, bare metal, Edge devices, type, those types of things. But we kind of, let me step back on Edge. We in hypersive look at Edge as an overloaded term, and we have to actually figure out what it really means. Edge to us is really more of a concentric ring. And so if you, if you think about a concentric ring, right, at the center of that concentric circle that kind of expands out, like, like layers in a tree as it grows older, at the core, what you really now have are the service providers, uh, clearly Amazon, Microsoft at this point. I mean, I can acknowledge Google, but the majority of customers are Amazon, and Microsoft for traditional services that you can build on top of, right? Mm-hmm. Google is huge in consumer grade services that you consume. They definitely have, a pr- so Amazon, Microsoft, and to some extent, Google, but they're now at the core and they represent in my old electrical engineering days, we would have called those uh, feeder circuits, right? in power, power distribution. In the modern era, we would think of those as the big Amazon warehouse fulfillment center type activities that feed out to the prime nows, right? So at the center, you have these service providers and that is the new basis of on-prem today, right? It's, it's what we call it cloud. And then what's really happening is you go one ring out of that, the next ring around that is you start to get out of the traditional cl- central cloud model and more towards this concept of edge. You get into the colos and so of course the leaders here in the u.s are coresite and Equinix, and maybe not in that order coresite of course just got bought by american tower digital realty su- yep yep, D- yep drt it's not surprising for the acquisition of course it, it actually hints at where the edge is going we think from a public perspective but that whole second layer of colo is now really becoming hey we're, we're one layer removed from the service provider central model we're direct connected or circuit connected back to those providers and we can get you close we can get closer to your buildings and then historically we were good with that. And then really the next historical ring was cool. Let's just go straight to the buildings, which is in that. But we actually see the second circle outside of the colos now getting into what we'll call near-prem. We generally think of near-prem as as on-prem, but things that aren't in a building. And I'm gonna talk about that in just a second. But to be very open, like this is the vapor.io of the world, right? This is the idea that we can put this meet-me room, this small two two rack unit, as small as two rack unit, conex container, shipping container, into a neighborhood that has connectivity to the IX and the circuit and the city around it and can uplink into those colos or the service providers, but can get downstream into the buildings as well. And that, that solves a really interesting place because at the third ring, then around that is really in the buildings and the freeways actually, no, sorry, before I even go to buildings, it can even be the the wireless tower sites. I think wireless tower sites are something people should be focusing on heavily American tower, crown castle SBA. What's interesting by the way, about wireless sites is to understand that industry and where it really is going to go you have to look at a map, right? And when you look at a map of where those wireless tower sites pop up, they're along U.S. freeways. And somebody like American Tower is like 25 countries worldwide. Those are places where people go. And so this gets into this new order of like, hey, we've got this edge compute now at these freeways into this, what gets into this mobile edge compute, MEC, mech world. That's interesting for when we think of like autonomous vehicles and content delivery into those vehicles, like what does mech mean here now? And so- Wireless sites are a, a new dimension, really at the third ring, kind of next to buildings. And so I think you start with this concentric server, of well, service provider, then to colos, then to near-prem players like Vapor IO, and then you get finally out to the last ring, which is the traditional buildings and the, and the MEC players like wireless tower sites.
1: When you think about it, I mean, n- no enterprise that's in the business of making sandwiches or housing retail stores or building things should want to have a data center. Like th- that's that's brain damage. They do it because you have to, but it's not their expertise. I mean, Amazon can run a data center hundreds of times more efficiently than than a private person with with increased resilience and security and and cost efficiencies, at least from a scale perspective. And then you get these network effects, right? You get these other services that are inter- interacting with each other. I mean, one of the things that, that that I know you're working on is the ability to take the video management system and connect it to AI inferencing systems. And yep. it'd be very hard to do on-premise at scale, right? You'd have to put a server in everybody's thing. But if if it's part of the infrastructure, it's, it, it's there.
2: Yeah, it's a really good call out. It's less to do about being on-prem with the traditional servers. It has everything to do about the, the challenge that the tradition, look, we're huge fans of Dell and HP and VMware. We have relationships with all three of those companies. Yeah, yeah. But the challenge that they know they face, which is why they partner with the likes of Amazon and Microsoft, is the next level of services, right? So for us, compute never can storage is a primitive primordial service, right? It's kind of ring zero. But when you start to move up the stack into containers or high rate ingestion systems like a Kinesis or Kinesis video streams or like a video distribution platform like AWS Elemental, which really focuses on live streaming and, and, and live ingestion of, of, of video at scale. These are just, these are services that are now native to the service providers, not to the traditional on-prem. And when you're talking about like AI and inferencing, right? Yes, you have players out there who can install into a virtual machine running on VMware, but then there's a whole world where like companies like Amazon are building machine learning models and SageMaker and recognition and native services. You just can't get anywhere else. And so Again, I think the long-term here is it's less to do about the compute and the need for the rack. It's more of I'm trying to get out of a world where I'm only left with primordial infrastructure, compute, network, and storage, and moving into second or third tier services from these providers. And right now, those services, of course, are totally remote. We do see a world one day where the companies like Amazon and Microsoft bring the services back to their cloud edge hardware. And I think in 10 years' time or less, we will see a rise in cloud-based hardware infrastructure on back on-prem or near-prem that has these types of native services that are more than just primordial infrastructure.
1: And I think you're skirting around a really interesting point that I've arrived at. I mean, like I, I've been in the edge industry for five years and I'm actually tired of talking about edge because yeah. it doesn't really mean anything, right? I mean, I've, I've asked I've asked 20 of the top edge people what's to edge and on-prem and they, they look at me like, like, the control plane goes up to the cloud. It's like, there's no difference, right? And the enterprises, all, all they care about is, can I get my service in a secure and reliable and relatively inexpensive way when I need it and scale it on demand? Like that's all they care about. They don't care whether it's running in Oregon or down the street, as long as it meets those check boxes. So we've talked about the present, right? And when I kind of go forward into the future, into Star Wars, or you know, I think of like Minority Report, I mean, video, video is just such a rich media, and it's it's obviously used tremendously for security. What are you excited about?
2: I love it, video. And one of the ways we talk about this is truly totally hypersive, right? Is there's a world where we're going to go where it's blanket the earth? Like, let me give some big projections here, at the risk of oversharing some of our potential IP. Let me to answer that question. I'm going to kind of pull back some stuff you've already thrown at me. So inferencing in AI is the Star Wars and the Star Trek of the world, which is like, hey, we can do more with less. It's like, oh, I want to be on a factory line, and I want to measure defects with a camera, and I don't ever want people to do that. Absolutely, right? That's, that's kind of a holy grail that you're trying to get to. It doesn't really exist today. It exists in concept, and that's what a lot of the manufacturers are working towards, first and third-party analytic firms. But, but what's funny, too, nothing replaces human eye. So the human eye has a, an interesting problem we suffer fatigue, try watching TV and not zoning out or thinking about like, you know, how you did yesterday at work or building that patio in the summertime or whatever it is that you think about. So humans have a tremendous problem with eye fatigue. So it's really hard to watch video streams, even four of them at one time. Hmm. So the natural tendency is, yeah, we should do more with analytics so that humans don't process these things. But at the same time too, for every, every AI fanatic who's like, we can totally get rid of the human need to look at any video streams. I'm like, great, here, poke your eyes out, take a fork, ram, ram, ram. Now you can't see, you're blind, how do you feel? And the five senses we have, the the most important sense we have is sight. I think everybody would give up taste, sound, smell, and feel. I mean, it's the highest
1: bandwidth, yeah, I think you're right.
2: And so when you work from that perspective, again, all of this world is not technical, it's human. I started this podcast off by talking about the human element of how we secure buildings and how we move people through. You have to come back to the human element, right? Hmm. Humans wanna have the option to know that they can see at any point in time. They might not look at it, they might store for years, but I can go back and look at something if I absolutely have to. And we have to remember that as we move forward. And I think this opens up two really interesting domains for us. One, there's a world where it really, we want to blanket the earth with cameras, okay? And and that just means buying more cameras to see in areas that we can't see today. That's a function of of labor and balance of finance and return on investment, measured against the capital cost of that. But two, there's a world where Historically, cameras are usually an, it's by an owner. The owner wanted to see the owner could be a security team, the owner could be a person who runs a bodega in New York City. That person wanted to see and record things, right? But we're now emerging into a new territory where there's a multi-tenant need for that camera. You're looking at something that's interesting to me. A very easy example is a security team that puts cameras up on a ceiling in a corporate building. And maybe the human, the HR team wants to see where people are spending their time, how long they're dwelling at the coffee machine or,
1: or the emotion study on nurses in a hospital. Cause if you can save a minute per nurse per shift, that's a lot of money. Cause a lot of nurses in a big hospital.
2: Yeah, totally. So from a human and a business perspective, there's this idea of, Hey, somebody owns that camera. I want access to that feed. And that comes with a lot of security implications. Like if you said to me, Hey Matt, if Matt, you said to me, Hey Steve, Give me access to your video streams and I technically there's a way I could distribute those to you. Now I start to worry about like, did you take those and post them on the New York Times right. front page and make me look bad? So we we start to think about things like watermarking. But where I'm going with this is, have you ever looked at a building and seen two or three cameras in the same exact location and said to yourself, what idiot installed those?
1: I, I have actually. They, yeah, tell yeah. me, why is that the case? Because they got three different you got the HR's got their own camera, and security's got their own camera. <laughs>
2: Yeah, it's, it's actually not an idiot who did that. There's an old saying that the security industry will have, which is the only thing that two security principles can agree upon is the third is wrong, right? So right. you when you see a cluster of cameras and the same thing, it's usually...
1: That applies to marketers and engineers, by the way, also.
2: Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, totally. And and being you on the marketing side, me on the engineering and technical side. So it's usually representative of, of an interest in something that that location can get an insight into where those parties can agree upon. And I think the blanket the Earth, and and this isn't really Star Trek, S- Star Wars kind of stuff, but I'm going to get you there, right? And the humans want to inherently see. It's the number one sense that we we think of. And they wanted the option to see. And so they want to blanket the Earth. And and that comes about for lots of different reasons. Rain Camera does a lot to prove that, by the way, right? Like, we want to see. But, but then there's, like, I want access to your streams because I want to do some analysis. I want to see the dwell time at the bathroom. I want to see something for not security or not legal reasons more marketing or more hr driven or whatever the whatever it is but there's a world we're going into and it's we're still 5 years out maybe 10 where there's a the first party world like hey you want my video streams cuz you want to do some processing on them okay that's first party that's you and me that's source and target in the in the ip networking world we call that layer 2 there's a world where we think we're going to layer 3 video which is to say it's not you but somebody beyond you i don't know that person but I need to route that video down to that person or those people down there who want to see my feed. Do I
1: also need to attach the limitations and constraints on usage and copyright and all of that to that video stream?
2: Chain of custody and everything. And then there's other interesting things here, and you should expect that this isn't domain. I can't really get into this any further, but this this is the this is my ten-year view out on the I Smell blockchain here somewhere. Uh, you didn't you didn't hear me say that? And blockchain is only part of it. Just FYI. Yeah. But yes, it does. It does open up very interesting ideas. And I think we're just starting to uncover this idea of because we've just come to this place where it's like, hey, you've got a video stream and I like the services like SageMaker and AI models that people write, these third-party companies like Tuch AI write, these are really awesome things, but it's really a first-party negotiation. Now it opens up the mm. door for who's who's downstream from you at a second or third or fourth hop that wants that video stream as well that I don't know and you don't know, and we don't trust each other. And what are the things that you want it for? Why do you want it? Like those are.
1: And what are the potential unintended consequences?
2: Yeah, and so you get into this world where you're starting to say, well, humans like to see things and mm. I, might, I might want data all the way on the other side to train my model, right? Hot dog, not hot dog type thing. There's a lot of business reasons why you want to do this. And I think that's where we're in the early stages of exploring that and some early prototype work. But that, that is where, that's where the industry goes. And, and in this industry in particular for your audience, Follow the humans. It, it always comes. This is this is not a website. This is not serverless. This is not container or tech for the sake of tech. This is straight up what humans do and what the, when you talk about video surveillance and physical security technology and really the broader building management, building management and those things that I've just m- marked off all follow hu- the movement of humans and the the concern around humans and it's it's always the human factor that drives the, the decisions around the technology and where it goes.
1: Yeah, that's really insightful. I mean, it's, it's a little counterintuitive, but once you think about it, you're absolutely right. Like That's the whole the whole point of it. Hey, Steve, this has been an amazing interview. I really appreciate you spending the time. For people who want to learn more about Hypersive or get a hold of you, what's the best way to find you guys online?
2: Yeah, uh, simple, www.hypersive.com. You can also find us on LinkedIn, Steve Mueller. Uh, I think it's, if I recall, easiest way to find us is that way. And then if you want to get in touch with us, sales at hypersive.com is easy.
1: Awesome, Steve. It's great. Hey, I appreciate
2: the time, Matt, and uh, thank you for the opportunity. That does it for this episode of Over the Edge. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a rating and a review and tell a friend. Over the Edge is made possible through the generous sponsorship of our partners at Dell Technologies. Simplify your edge so you can generate more value. Learn more by visiting dell.com.